Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. The writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now go to chapter 7, if you would, of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 26. 726 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point, chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places and the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if you were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Do you ever feel like giving up? You ever feel like just life is so hard or what circumstances you're going through, you just you feel like giving up? Back in the mid-90s, I had my very first ever coaching experience. And I think it's been my only coaching experience ever. And the story I'm about to tell you will explain why. It was... I was a youth pastor at the time in Springfield, Ohio, and some guys in our youth group, high school guys, wanted to participate in this boys, high school boys, church basketball league. And they said, hey, Pastor Mar, would you be willing to coach us? I played like YMCA basketball. I played on my junior high, seventh grade team in, in middle school. And I was like, out of 15 guys, I was number 15. Actually, I think it was actually number 16. Only there the were 15 guys because I never got into play, right? And so I've had very little basketball experience. But I'm like, well, sure, I'll coach you guys. So we would have practice once a week, and games started. And I'm telling you, we were getting drilled 30, 40, 50 points in a church league, no less. I mean, it was awful. It was horrible. It was so bad. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, we'd meet every week, and we'd try to run these drills and run these practices. And these poor boys, I mean, it was just so bad. I didn't know what I was doing, I, you know. Trying to figure, I would go to the library and read books because back then, like the internet, what is that kind of a thing, right? And so I was like, I need plays. I need to figure this thing out. And so I remember one particular game, we were getting blown out by like 30, 40, 50 points. It was so bad. And it was a struggle. Everybody on the team wanted to give up. I wanted to give up and just go home. I mean, I was just awful. 
And so it was near the end of the game, and uh, I called a timeout just to kind of bring the guys to the side and just arrest the guys and just say, you know, there's nothing to say. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing I could say. Like, yeah, we're awful. I mean, I, I'm bad, you're bad, whatever. This is just a bad thing. Like, I don't know what else to tell you guys. We're just awful. So, um, but then one of the guys in the timeout said, what about our go-to play? Now, back in one of our practices, we had said, if the game ever got close, we were really believing that that could happen. Never did. But in the event that the game got close and we needed to score a basket, we need to have some kind of go-to play that we could go to and pretty confident that we'd get two points. And so in that practice, we came up with this wild and crazy go-to play that we were confident no one else in the history of basketball has ever done, but it was guaranteed we were going to get two points. So I'm in that timeout. This young man says, let's go with our go-to play. Guys, what do you think? We got nothing else to lose. Let's go for it. We were inbounding the ball underneath the opposing team's basket. And here's how we set up. We had one guy underneath the opposing team basket out of bounds to inbound the ball. Next guy would be about 15 feet from him. Next guy, third guy would be at midcourt, half court. Another guy would be underneath our hoop to receive the pass to make the basket. Another kid was completely on the other side of the court, way out of the way. His name was Ryan Reed. Ryan was crazy, like crazy. You would ask Ryan to do anything, didn't matter what it was, and he would do it. And he would do it to the fullest uh, uh, that he could. I mean, it was just, he just didn't matter. He was just crazy, loved it. So here was the play. The play was this. As soon as we inbound the ball, goes to, right, next person 15 feet away. He's going to pass it and get it to the person at midcourt. Ryan is going to go to center court where the logo is, get on all fours and start barking like a dog. <laughs> that was our play. He's going to be distraction. And so while everybody was distracted by Ryan at midcourt, the ball would go to the Ryan, another Ryan underneath our basket. He would make the basket, and we would score two points. In theory, that would have been to win a game. And this was just a score because we hadn't scored in years. Okay? So we're like, referee blows the whistle. Ball goes in, 15 feet, like clockwork. Midcourt, clockwork, right? Ryan goes to midcourt, and the logo starts barking like a dog, like clockwork. Everyone is distracted, right? Understandably, everyone. Ball goes to Ryan underneath the hoop. He completely misses the basket. <laughs> I mean, it was, we're like, it failed, right? We thought we had a really good go-to that was going to win, that was going to make the basket, that was going to work, but it didn't. And as I think about that, and I think about a go-to play, right, a, a go-to, when I think about life and we think about following Jesus, following Jesus gets hard, right? It gets hard. It gets difficult. And when everything in you wants to give up or everything in you wants to give in and listen to that distracting voice of sin, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, don't. Don't give up. Don't give in. Why? Because you have a go-to. A go-to that knows how to overcome. A go-to that has already won. A go-to that knows how to endure. And his name is Jesus. 
And when everything in you says, I can't do this, Jesus, the writer reminds us, Jesus can. And instead of giving up on Jesus, the writer reminds us to go to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is your great high priest. And that's what I want us to see this morning. I want to unpack a lot of text this morning. And we're not going to look at all of it. We're not going to read all this, so so don't freak out on me. All right, but... Really, from chapter 4, verse 14, to the middle of chapter 8, the writer talks about Jesus being this high priest. He talks about him being this high priest. And so I kind of want to follow the writer's flow of thought here. Follow his flow of thought. So from chapter 4, verse 14, to about verse 10 of chapter 5, he's going to bring back this truth that Jesus is a great high priest. He introduced this back in chapter 2 of Hebrews, but he brings it back up again. And that's what he says in verse 14 of chapter 4. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He's saying, Because Jesus is your great high priest, keep going. That's, that's his point. He's saying, because Jesus is your hyper, keep going, hold fast. And then if you go to chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, he says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, referring to Jesus, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 10 of chapter 5 He says, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, at about verse 10 or so of chapter 5, the writer brings out this idea, this truth that Jesus is a high priest. Now, what's a high priest? Go back to the Old Testament. You can read about it in the book of Exodus, chapters 28, 39, the book of Leviticus, chapter 8. Basically, the high priest was this Jewish guy from the tribe of Levi that God appointed to go into the temple and inside the temple were two rooms, right? The holy place and the holy of holies. And only the high priest was the person that could go into this room called the holy of holies. Inside that room was Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen, right? I mean, the Ark of the Covenant. You have this, this, this box, and on top of this box was this thing called a mercy seat. And God had told his people, that's where I'm gonna dwell. My presence is gonna be on top of this mercy seat. Now, If you were from any other tribe, if you were not from the tribe of Levi, you could not go into the Holy of Holies. Only if you were a Jew from the tribe of Levi and appointed as a high priest. So these priests were really, in some ways, maybe idolized by the Jewish people. These guys were the people that, man, they knew how to be with God. They, they were privileged to go in behind the curtain because there was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from this room. And only the high priest could go into this room, bring the sacrifice, offered on the altar, and for a year God would cover the sins of his people. And only the high priest could go into that room, could access the very presence of God. Well, well, why is this important? Why does the writer bring this out, that Jesus is a high priest? Well, the people he's writing to are Jewish Christians. They're Jewish Christians. They would have understood this. They would have had great respect for people like high priests. They would have seen these guys, those are the spiritual guys, because they know how to go into the presence of God, because actually they're only ones that can go into the presence of God, all right? So it's these high priests that would have idolized them. And honestly, too, what's going on with these Jewish Christians is it's hard to follow Jesus right now for them. They live in a culture 
where if you follow Jesus, you could easily be persecuted. You could be thrown in prison. The struggle was real for them. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when the struggle happens, we tend to go back to what's comfortable, right? We tend to just go to back to what's easy. We tend to go back to things that we can control. I'm like that. And that's what their problem was. They were, t- their tendency was, man, it's hard to follow Jesus, so let me go back to what I know. Let me go back to what's easy. Let me go back to this religious ritual of the law and following, because we know how to do that. So let's go back to that, because following Jesus, it just, it's hard. This seems easier. And so what the writer wants to do is he wants to remind them, hey, hey, Jesus is better than your religious rituals. He's better than that. In fact, he's better than any and every other high priest. He's the great high priest. And because he's the great high priest, don't give up on him. Instead, go to him, he says, because he's the high priest. So he's trying to bring out this point that I know it's tempting to go back to what's comfortable and you idolize these high priests. But listen, you got to understand Jesus is the great high priest. He's not just any high priest. He's the great high high priest. And then in verse 11 of chapter 5 to about the end of chapter 6, the writer kind of takes this pause for a moment from talking about Jesus as the high priest, and he just wants to remind them again, hey, don't give up. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God's promises. And you can kind of see this here in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5. He says this, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Man, can you imagine getting that? You guys are a bunch of dull, I mean, you guys aren't paying, you're not paying attention, you're not listening, is what he's saying, you're dull of hearing. And he says in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He's saying you're going back to what's comfortable. You're going back to the very thing that Jesus has set you free from. You should know better, he's saying. And then in chapter 6, verses 11 through 19, look at what he says. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Again, he's encouraging them. Don't give up. Keep following so that you may not be sluggish, verse 12 of chapter 6, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement, here it is, to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now that's loads of words, tons of words. Let me try to help us make sense of what he's trying to communicate here. He's already established that Jesus is your great high priest. All right, he's your great high priest. So so don't give up on him, go to him. And now he's gonna just remind them, hey, 
Keep trusting God. Just hold on to God's promises. Just keep holding on. And then he, then he takes them back to Abraham. Again, they're Jewish, right? They would have held Abraham in great respect and revered him. And so what the writer is doing is using Abraham as an example to try to encourage these first century followers of Jesus who are Jewish. Mm-hmm. He's saying, listen, just like your, your ancestor Abraham, he had to wait on God's promises. He was patient and kept trusting. You do the same. You follow his example, And so he's reminding them, listen, God can't lie. So if he's made a promise to you, he's going to keep it. And he promised centuries ago that he was going to send a redeemer, someone to come rescue you from your sin so that you could go behind the curtain. You could be in the presence of God. And that's what he says. He's saying Jesus was a forerunner. Well, if there's a forerunner, that means there's afterrunners. You and me, we're afterrunners because of what Jesus God did for us in the, on the cross to give us access into the Holy of Holies. Now we get to go behind the curtain into the very presence of God. We get to go in. We get to experience God. I remember back in the 90s, I'm going back to the 90s for some reason, um, in college, one of our favorite bands, actually my wife's favorite bands, Christian bands, was the band Petra. All right, Google them, they're old. All right, and so favorite bands, Christian rock bands, Petra. And when we were in college, a friend of Andrea's named Dan Reiner, they grew up on the mission field together, he was able to somehow get us backstage passes to meet Petra. Now, this was like a dream come true back then. Petra was huge, all right? So they were a huge Christian rock band. To meet them would have, was, would have been amazing. So we end up going to this concert. We got to do all this different stuff to kind of like help them set up, tear down. We didn't know that until we got there, right? Typical Dan kind of thing, right? It's like, oh, by the way, you got to set up and tear down and do all that, which is fine. All right, so we get there, and then we get to go into this back room where like the lead singer and all these guys are. I mean, we're in college. We're like, this is awesome backstage with Petra you're like I know you can't relate because we're old and you're like I don't know this group that's okay well think of your favorite group and you got to go backstage and hang out with them jaw on the floor right you're like oh okay you know you'd be crazy that's kind of what it was for us right and 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 what he's saying here the writer's going listen God has provided a way for you to have an all-access backstage pass into the presence of God forever You get to hang out with God and be with him forever in his presence because of the promise that he's made through his son, Jesus Christ. He's a forerunner. You get to be an afterrunner. And he's reminding him, so so don't give up. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Instead of giving up on Jesus, go to Jesus. And then he continues in chapter 6 at the very end of verse 20 where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So from verse 20 of chapter 6 to through pretty much most of chapter 7, the writer brings up this dude Melchizedek, all right? Now, Melchizedek, you read about him in Genesis chapter 14. Now, Melchizedek was a priest and a king before there was any setup of laws or system about Levitical priests, okay, priests from the tribe of Levi. And what he says here is that this Melchizedek guy, he was a priest and a king, but he was not from the tribe of Levi. All right. God said, had made a system to where if you were going to be a high priest, you need to be from the tribe of Levi. But the writer says, but there was a priest before God set up that system who wasn't from the tribe of Levi. And Abraham actually affirmed and approved this dude Melchizedek as a high priest of God. 
So what he's doing is he's trying to show, and you see this, that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Look at verse, uh, verses 11 through 19 of chapter 7. 11 to 19 of chapter 7, he says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, talking about Jesus, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced and through which we draw near to God. I think what the writer's doing here, he's trying to get, show that Jesus has the better credentials. His credentials for being a high priest are better. And he's trying to help them understand, because if you're a Jew following Jesus, you're going, yeah, but those high priests were from, were from the tribe of Levi. Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. So how can Jesus be my high priest? Well, let me take you back to your ancestry, to a guy named Melchizedek, and actually the guy you revere a lot, Abraham, who's like, kind of like the father of your people, like he affirmed Melchizedek as a high priest, and Melchizedek wasn't from the tribe of Levi. So if you're affirming and appointing Melchizedek as a high priest, we can do the same with Jesus. So he's trying to give evidence and prove that Jesus is a better high priest than even Melchizedek. And, and I think, too, he wants to show that even those from the tribe of, tribe of Levi, those priests, were insufficient priests. They couldn't get the job done. And he actually says that in verse 11. Now, if perfection, which is what you and I need, holiness, in order to be in the presence of God. Now, if that was attainable through being a Levitical priest, then we wouldn't need Jesus to come. But the very fact that Jesus came proves that what was happening before was insufficient. It couldn't get the job done. Are you tracking? Because it, it could be confusing. I get it. All right? And, and so he's trying to bring out this point that we need Jesus. Because those who are going out, they, if you're not a Jew and you're not from the tribe of Levi, you're not going in the presence of God. We need a better high priest. And that's what he's trying to communicate. And he's trying to remind them, you've got one. And his name is Jesus. And then he goes in verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1. He says this. Now the point, and what we're saying in this, it's like taking him like four chapters, right? And he comes to chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what I'm trying to say, guys. Here. I'm like, dude, you could have just said this, right? Why don't you just say this like four chapters ago? But he knows who he's talking to. He's got to try to prove to these people that Jesus is better. Because our tendency is to go back to the comfortable, go back to what's easy. And he's like, no, 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 don't go back to that. Go to Jesus. And here he says, now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Man, just picture that. He's saying, listen, because Jesus is the better high priest, when following Jesus gets hard, following Jesus is still better. When following Jesus gets hard, following Jesus is still better. Why? Because he's your great high priest. Break that down for me, Jones. All right, I will. How is Jesus the better high priest? Let's talk about that for a moment. How is Jesus a better high priest? 
Well, look at this. Look at what the writer does here. In chapter 7, verse 24, he says this. Let's start with 23. The former priests, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So he had to keep getting more priests because they were human and kept dying. Jesus lives forever. Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Do you see that? His priesthood is permanent. His priesthood is forever. Because Jesus is your high priest, his forgiveness is permanent. His forgiveness is forever. It's not temporary. That's good news, people. That's really good news. Because you know what that means is I don't have to keep making sacrifice after sacrifice to try to get God to like me enough to let me into his presence because Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, put himself on the altar, the altar of the cross, and through his perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice is forever. It is permanent. It's done. And so his forgiveness is forever. You don't have to keep saying prayers. You don't have to go to confession. You don't have to do more good deeds to earn his forgiveness. His forgiveness is forever. Why? Because he's forever. He's permanent. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not by what we do, but by what Christ has done for us. And he's saying following Jesus is better because his forgiveness is forever. And then he goes to verse 25, and he says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. It's an interesting little preposition there. He could have said from. Well, we know he saves us from the uttermost, the wrath and judgment of God. But he says he's saving us to the uttermost. What's that mean? That means it's comprehensive. It's complete. It's meaning Jesus will forgive every and any and all sin that you ever have committed. It's comprehensive forgiveness. Comprehensive. So some of you, some of us, we have such a nasty, dark past of sin. Right? And, and the enemy will bring that back up of guilt and all this stuff and and he's saying, wait a second. No, you have a high priest who forgives it all. To the uttermost, he forgives you. To the uttermost. There's no sin he won't forgive. Why? Because he's your great high priest. And his forgiveness is not temporary. It's permanent. It lasts forever. And it's, he saves you and forgives you from all sin. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Why? Because Jesus is your high priest. He's your high priest. And he keeps going. He's like on this roll. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And exalted above the heavens. What's he meaning there? He's saying, listen, Jesus, he himself in his person is perfect. What you need to be in the presence of God is perfection. It's holiness. You're not, I'm not. But there's only one who is, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus knows this about himself. He knows that he's the only perfect sacrifice. And so what's he do? The writer tells us, verse 27. He says, he has no need, Jesus, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. He offered up himself. Why himself? Because he's the only one who's perfect. No other high priest did this. No other high priest could do this. Because all other high priests are sinners, just like you and me. 
But the sacrifice had to be a perfect sacrifice. Jesus is perfect. So Jesus steps into the Holy of Holies, allows himself to go onto the altar of the cross, bleeds out. And because he's the perfect sacrifice given by the perfect high priest, God says, it is finished. It's finished. Perfect sacrifice. Once for all. Do you know what that means? It is enough. Jesus is enough. He's enough. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote. So think about this. His forgiveness is forever. It's permanent. It's comprehensive. It's complete. His sacrifice is perfect. His sacrifice is enough. And he keeps rolling. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now we see Jesus seated a lot in Hebrews. What's that mean? If someone's sitting down, it means the work is done. He's done the work. He's come home. He's home. He's in heaven and he's seated. That means he's done with the work. What's that tell you about the sacrifice? It's final. It's final. It's been accepted. The work is done. What's that mean then? It means you can go in now. You get to go in. You get to be in the presence of God. Now, back in the old days, right, when a young woman was about to give birth, and I wish it would have been this way for me because I was horrible in the delivery room. All right, I think I've told you those stories before. I was horrible. I was standing on Andrea's IV one time, and it was just like, it was just bad, okay? Won't go into that. But back in the old days, right, when a woman was about to give birth and she was in labor, typically the guy would just wait in the waiting room, right? He'd just, he'd just wait. And he'd just sit there and he'd wait, and he'd wait, and he'd wait, and he'd wait. Until the doctor came out and would say something like, you could go in now. You can go in. So you walk through the door and you get to experience this presence of this life that God has given you. And it's like the writer is saying, because Jesus is your great high priest, because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, because his sacrifice was final, because his sacrifice is enough, because his forgiveness is forever and permanent and complete, you can go in now. You can go in. You can go in and experience the presence of God yourself because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And if we go back to chapter 4, this high priest that's enabled us to go in and experience his presence. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's he saying? He's saying you have a high priest, a God who's not distant, but a God who understands the struggle, a God who understands. He's been there. He's get, he gets it. When we were at the marriage retreat last week, one of the discussions that we had as guys was just this need to, to learn to empathize and feel try to feel what our wives are feeling and try to, try to understand that a little bit. And here the writer is saying Jesus can empathize because he's experienced it. Whatever struggle, whatever feelings, whatever emotions you have as you follow, he gets that following God is hard. He understands that. He gets that being obedient is difficult. 
He understands, yet it says he was without sin. Man, that is so good. You know why? Because it tells me that Jesus knows how to endure. He knows how to keep going, yet he did not sin. He endured. He has overcome. He knows how to win because he has won. So he understands what you're experiencing, and yet he was without sin. When the enemy came to him in the desert with all the temptations, he won. He endured. And when he's praying in the garden, hours before the cross, he says, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. But you know what his next words are? When the army came to get him, he says, rise up, let's go. Not to fight back, but to willingly allow them to place him on the altar of the cross so that you and I could go in and be in the presence of God and have this relationship with God forever. Jesus has proven he knows how to overcome. He knows how to endure. Man, for, for those of us that have kind of been in church for a while and we hear this truth, man, I just think sometimes we've just been so inoculated with it that we hear this stuff, we're like, I know that. I get that Jesus forgives me and his forgiveness is forever. And but man, think about that for a moment. Let that settle in your heart. Not just what you've received, but the cost so that you could receive it. And how Jesus willingly did that for you, and he willingly did that for me. And so what's our response to this high priest, right, who says, listen, I know that it's hard. I know that it's hard to follow me. But following me is still better, he says. My forgiveness, it's forever. My forgiveness, it's, it's complete. My sacrifice is perfect. My sacrifice is final. I understand and I overcome. And you get to be in with me forever. And I think the response is the same for us as it is to, for these Jewish Christians. And you can see in chapter 4, verse 15, he says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near. And then chapter 7, verse 19, he says it again. He says this, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 25, he says, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. You have a, you have an, a high priest who takes your request to the throne for you. Man, we were um, blessed this Monday to have Andrea's dad come and, and stay with us for a while, and he's here today, which we're thankful for. And he was sharing with us Monday night a story that just kind of opened our eyes, I think, a little bit. I don't know if he may not even know that he shared it. Remember that he shared it. But, you know, for some of you, you know this, uh, Andrea's mom passed away about a year and a half ago. And... You know, he said, as we were sitting, he was sitting there on the couch, we're in the living room. He said, you know, I, was, I wasn't sure I could handle being in the house alone. I, I wasn't sure if I could get through that. I wasn't sure if when the last light went out, if I could handle the darkness of just being alone. And he said, you know, when it happened... And I turned out the last light. I just kept calling out to Jesus. I just kept calling out to him. And I know that, and he, I knew that Jesus was with me. And you know, the darkness it wasn't as dark 
as what I thought it was going to be. It just wasn't as dark. And so now I just kind of lie there and just talk to Jesus. And I know that he's with me. Why can he say that? Why can he talk to Jesus and know that Jesus is listening? Because Jesus is my kid's Paul Paul's high priest. He's its high priest. And he knows that because of what Jesus has done for him, he has 24-7, 365 access into the throne room of God. And so do you if you know Jesus this morning. And so I think the response is the same as draw near. When following Jesus gets hard, following Jesus is still better because Jesus is your great high priest. He is a go-to that will always make the basket. Right? He's a go-to who will always win the game. And he's already won through the cross and the empty tomb. And so I think for us this morning, as the band comes, I think for us this morning, the response is to go to Jesus. What is your struggle this morning? Go to Jesus instead of giving up on Jesus. Go to Jesus. And so the challenge this week is to do that, is to go to Jesus. When you're struggling this week, And those feelings start to come of just giving up and it just gets so hard to do the right thing, to resist that sin, whatever it might be, go to Jesus. Or if you have a friend that you're talking with and they're struggling, point them to your go-to and go to Jesus with them. Or you're in a conversation with a coworker or a neighbor or someone on campus and you're talking about the struggles of life, talk to them about your go-to, Jesus. Because he knows how to overcome. He knows how to keep going when following gets hard. And because of what he's done for you, as we sang at the very beginning, he says, come. Come. Come in. Just come in. I've made the way for you.